Well, we are back in the book of Acts, and I am so excited. So if you would, please open your Bibles back to Acts, and we'll be in chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. If you haven't been with us, we've been going through uh, consecutive expositions through the book of Acts, uh, which has been really fun because the author of Acts is Luke, and Pastor Jerry has been in Luke on Sunday morning. So we are getting a lot of Luke these days. The Lord has decided for a Lucan season for us. <laughs> I've titled today's sermon, A Threat to the Reformation in Samaria. A Threat to the Reformation in Samaria. Before we jump into this profound passage, I want to talk about another time in church history where a Reformation was actually undone. Sometimes I grieve about you in this group and this generation. You're so cut off from church history because the young millennial generation, I'm not saying you guys, but as a whole, doesn't seem to reach back in the past and find where their roots came from. And many of you may not have even done a study of the American Reformation and American church history, let alone England and Scotland and all through Europe, and now we're in the book of Acts, all the way back to Acts 2, where church history starts. But I want to begin our time by talking about the American Reformation and what happened to it. Most of you know the name Jonathan Edwards, right? Most of you have read Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards would be really the foremost theologian and pastor of the American Reformation. Now you may know this, and we've spoke about it in here, but in 1620 when the Mayflower landed in New England, there was a bunch of Puritans on it. And actually, Edward's family was on there as one of the Puritans coming over from England. And the reason they came is they were tired of having no freedom to worship under the monarchy in England, so they wanted to find a new land where they could worship freely. Hence, New England, when they came. But within a hundred years, by the 1730s and 40s, Jonathan Edwards, now a third generation pastor, is burdened and despairing and grieving. And do you know why, beloved? He is grieving and burdened because he is looking at the landscape in the church in America within a hundred years of the pure church of the Puritans that came to New England. And he's burdened because he thinks that the church in New England has all but been taken over by Satan. First and second great awakenings had some excitement to them, but so much of the revival was full of revivalism and emotions stirring. And false converts were being produced in the masses and filling up the churches in New England. The church was filling up with unbelievers. So Jonathan Edwards was fearful that Satan had filled up the church with counterfeits. And he says this, this is in his intro to his volume, Religious Affections. And that volume was written for the church and produced in 1746. And its single purpose was similar to what our passage will be today. To help the true church identify what a true believer is that professes to follow Christ and what an unbeliever is that professes to follow Christ. That there's two types of professions, he says. Those that become affected and excited and that are unsaved, and those become affected and excited, but it's true regeneration. And he helped the church try and identify what was true fruit, what was in a religious affection from a man-generated affection. And so he says, here's his burden on why he wrote his volume in 1746. It is by the mixture of counterfeit religion with the true, that's false converts mixed with the true, that the devil has had his greatest advantage against the cause of the kingdom of Christ in New England today. By this, 
By what? By, by Satan filling up the church with unbelievers. He has hurt the cause of Christianity in and after the apostolic age. Much more, listen to this, much more than all the persecution of both Jews and heathens. The apostles and all their epistles show themselves much more concerned at the former mischief than the latter. Did you catch that? He's saying that the apostles were far more concerned about false believers filling up the church than they were the church being persecuted. He says, by this, the church being filled up with unbelievers, Satan has prevailed against every reformation. Beginning by Luther and Zwingli's, he put a stop to its progress, and he bring it into disgrace. Side note, if you read the life of John Knox, this is a side note from what he's saying. John Knox was able to declare Scotland Protestant, and he died 12 years later, and he died because he was so grieved, they say, because the church started to fill up with unbelievers who became nationally Protestant but weren't regenerated. So John Knox died in grief about the church filling up with unbelievers in Scotland. Side note. Back to Edwards. He says this about reformations. He says, Satan prevailed against the Reformation, Luther and Zwingli, and put a stop to its progress and bring it into disgrace. Listen to this. Ten times more than all those bloody, cruel, and before unheard of persecutions of the church in Rome. By this, filling up the church with unbelievers, he has prevailed against New England to quench the love and spoil and the joy of her growth just a hundred years ago. And then he gives some personal commentary. I have had opportunity enough to see plainly that by this, the the devil has prevailed against this late revival, first and second great awakenings in New England. So happy and promising in her beginning. Here, most evidently, has been the main advantage of Satan has had against us. By filling up the church with false converts, he has all but defeated us. It is by this means... Her face has been disfigured, speaking of the church, her nakedness exposed, her limbs broken, and she is weltering in the blood of her own wounds. Satan goes on with mankind, listen to this, as he began with them. He prevailed against our first parents, Adam and Eve, so the same cunning serpent that beguiled Eve through his subtlety by perverting her from the simplicity that was in Christ hath suddenly prevailed and ruined the state of the church of God in New England. 1746. Sounds like today. Sounds like the church that we live in, beloved. It's a very interesting thing, guys, when you start to think about every single Reformation in the history of the church. Starting in Acts 2, the Reformation there in Pentecost, we'll see today a Reformation in Samaria, the second church ever planted by God, another Reformation. But when you study these reformations, let me ask you something. What do you think the greatest concerns were of the apostles as God is creating mass conversions in the church? What do you think most burdened the apostles? Based on our study from Acts right now, Acts 2 to 8 so far, what's burdened the apostles most, beloved? What do you think? God's saving thousands. Church in Jerusalem's up to 20,000. Church in Samaria is about to fill up with thousands more today. But what was burdening the apostles, guys? Yeah, Cameron. When They weren't concerned about suffering. They were concerned about sinning when there was suffering. Yep, that's one, that's one main concern. That's one I have documented. Ian? Uh, the unity of the church, so that's why they appointed deacons. 
So the unity of the church, that's why they appoint these prototype deacons in Acts 6. But what's the greatest threat to a true church's unity, Ian? Yeah. Okay. And so what did God do with the first threat to unity when two unbelievers tried to gain influence in the church? God killed them. Church discipline. That's the first church discipline you have in the Bible. Acts 4 and 5, when God killed Ananias and Sapphira, two unbelievers that were almost raised up in the church. You guys are all putting your finger on it. The greatest concern to the early apostles was that they would sin when they were suffering and hurt their conscience. They were most concerned about living a holy life, not about suffering. What happened when suffering came? They rejoiced at what a privilege it was to suffer for Jesus. I just don't want to compromise. And the second thing they were concerned about was the church's unity and her purity, and that unbelievers would enter into the church and contaminate the pure product of the first church. We've got it flipped today in America, don't we? And every Reformation's been ruined this way. We get more concerned about filling up the seats and dumbing down true conversion, not about it being true converts. And we're far more concerned about courting the culture and not having persecution than we are just being faithful even if we suffer. We've flipped it. This is what ruins any true Reformation. You study all through church history. Every Reformation that dies, dies because believers start courting the culture and being more concerned about being accepted by them than sinning. And they stop caring so much about it, identifying and clarifying and re-clarifying what the true fruit that God produces in a believer looks like, sounds like, smells like, tastes like, and what it can look like for a phony to come into the church. You think about where we've been in Acts. Just think for a minute. If you haven't been with us, this will be, a rev- this will be new. The rest of you, it's review. The church is born in Acts 2. She starts to flourish. Thousands of believers are coming to Christ. Then persecution comes from the Sanhedrin. And more believers start coming to Christ. And the church is flourishing. Then Acts 4 and 5, Ananias and Sapphira raise up. And God deals swiftly with them because they're a threat to the purity of the church. Then the church starts to flourish more and Stephen and these young men start to come on the scene that are starting to become the godly men in the church. And then we saw for the last three weeks what happened to Stephen. Stephen was your first Christian martyr. And what did God do after Stephen was killed? Full-blown persecution came on the church and if you remember, the church started to scatter. Notice Acts 8 Verse 1, here's the context of where we're at. Persecutions come on the church. And if you don't remember, there's only been one church that exists now. The church in Jerusalem. There's one church in the world. The church in Jerusalem. First church, planted by God, Acts 2. Then you got Saul, chapter 8, verse 1, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, speaking of Stephen. And on that day, verse 2 of chapter 8, great persecution began against the church. And look at where they were scattered. From the regions of Judea and Samaria. Notice, except the apostles. That is to say, that will be important for today. The apostles somehow found somewhere to go underground and hang out in Jerusalem. So when the church reforms and comes back and people start coming back into Jerusalem, there's a solid center base. So the apostles stayed. But the rest of the believers were spread out. And if you remember, Acts 1.8, what's God say? I'm going to bring the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And he did it by persecution. This is dispersion by persecution. Notice they buried Stephen. Verse 2 of chapter 8. Saul kept ravaging the church. Verse 3. And then we hit chapter 4. Verse 1. Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the 
word. Stop there. Beloved, we're about to go into a narrative that we are barely going to be able to catch our breath in the beginning because God is going to take this man named Philip. And this man named Philip was chosen with Stephen in the seven. He's not one of the twelve, he's one of the seven, Acts 6. And God's going to use him and he becomes known as what? Philip the what? Evangelist. And I think they call him that from this scene. I think he gets that nickname from what happens in this scene today in Acts 8. He becomes Philip the Evangelist later in Acts. But I want you to think about something. We're about to enter into a passage where a reformation is going to be born in Samaria. And what you're going to see is this profound work of God where He starts saving. But before we can even gather ourselves, Luke decides to include in the second church ever born, the church in Samaria, a false convert rising up in the church. And you're going to see the apostles want to go deal swiftly with the false convert, just like God dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. So I ask you, beloved, something. Think about this. Why would we, in the first eight chapters of Acts, in the first two churches born, already have two occasions of true believers being saved, and then stories about how swiftly and severely and how aggressively godly men dealt with false converts in the church? I'll tell you why. Because if Satan is able to fill up the church with unbelievers, so much so that the unbeliever's life and the power that they have and the fruit that they have starts to look like the norm, all of a sudden true Christians actually become the minority and the false converts look like the norm and then they can remove the true believers and say, you're a legalist. You're, you're, you're a fundamentalist. You're over-aggressive. You're hyper-this. You're hyper-that. And all of a sudden, true fruit looks false because there's so many fake believers bearing no fruit. Satan's greatest work is to fill up the church with unbelievers so that true believers look like the minority and no longer the norm, and then they can be pushed out and removed. Go read Revelation 2 and 3 in those churches that God removes their lampstand. So what we're going to see, beloved, and I marvel that only God could write the Scriptures. Here we are enjoying the flourishing of the church and watching all of this and thinking, wow, the second church ever planted in Samaria and all of a sudden Simon the sorcerer rises up and you have a false convert that's a threat to the second ever church. So we have to just start thinking. That's very instructive for us to think about. Even in the first churches, you've got Ananias and Sapphira in Jerusalem and now Simon the sorcerer as Martin Lloyd-Jones calls him in our passage. So if you're taking notes, here's going to be, we're going to run through chapter 8, verse 4, all the way down to 8, 24 today. Here's your outline. And I'll give you a long one and a short one. Three scenes in inspired church history that tell the story of the second church ever, the church in Samaria. And what God did to bring reformation and then keep her pure. Or here's your shorthand. Three scenes of the Samaritan church to show what God did to bring reformation and then keep her pure. So let's walk through this. Three scenes in the Samaritan church. Beloved, this is our history. This is church history right here. And I marvel to think of what God's doing here. So watch this. Chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, in light of the persecution, those who had been scattered, including... Philip here, went about preaching. And one of those, notice verse 5, was a man named Philip. So he's ran out of town and he goes down to Samaria. Notice verse 5. He begins by preaching the gospel to them. Notice verse 6. The crowds in Samaria with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. 
as they heard and saw signs which he was performing. So clearly he was given spiritual powers through the, through the enablement of the Spirit to produce some of these miraculous sign gifts. Verse 7, look at what was happening in Samaria. Crowds were coming. They're in one accord. Verse 6, everyone's honing in. Who is this guy Philip that's been run out of Jerusalem? He's healing people. And watch this. Verse 7, for in this case, Many had unclean spirits. They were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, just like in Jesus' time. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So verse 8. So there was much rejoicing in the city. Stop there. Much rejoicing. Why was there rejoicing? Think about it. You've got family members who had had people that would have been lifelong paralytics, disabled, that were immediately brought back and had full restoration. And then you had people possessed by demons their whole life, where the demons are being cast out. Miracles are being done, but that's not the biggest miracle on why they're rejoicing. Notice back in verse 6. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what he said. They were listening to the gospel. Look at verse 12. He's preaching the gospel to them. Notice verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Beloved, you know why they were rejoicing? And crowds means masses were rejoicing. They were rejoicing because the miracle of conversion was taking place all over Samaria. The reason they were overwhelmed is that God was saving loads of, you'll see in a moment, these wicked, false-worshipping, sorcerer-worshipping, demonically-possessed people. Beloved, just think about that again. Notice verse 8. There was much rejoicing. Why? Not just these healings, but there was mass conversions. Do you, you just stop and ever think about that conversion's a miracle? Sometimes some of you will come up to me and I think I catch people off guard and someone will say, hey, I think I, think I just got saved. And I'm like, seriously? <laughs> You're telling me that you think you just came to Christ? You know that you just communicated to me a miracle where God reached down from heaven and made your dead heart live? He transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? You just described to me a miracle that takes my breath away. Have you thought about that? I remember I told that to one young lady sometime back, and then she starts crying, thinking, yeah, that's really good. <laughs> I'm thinking, we just have to stop sometimes and look at what an appropriate response is to conversion. I know in lots of circles, oh, these people got saved, hundreds got saved, thousands got saved, and we kind of trivialize conversion. When one sinner's soul is saved, heaven breaks out in worship. It's a miracle. And so, of course, the Samaritans were rejoicing. In fact, this is a reformation of the masses. And this is a serious miracle. Notice the false religion that they were coming out of. The revival breaks out. Then notice verse 9. There's kind of this representative that you'll see in a moment, this man named Simon. And there's some past tense verbs here. So what Luke's doing is he's saying, hey, look at all these conversions. Let me give you some background. This is amazing how many conversions there were. Look at how bad these people were. Now there was a man named Simon, verse 9, who formerly was practicing magic. See these former ideas. He's giving past tense to give you background. Was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people in Samaria, claiming to be someone great. So he's a false teacher of sorts. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, that is to say, the most insignificant to the most influential of the Samaritans, were giving attention to him, saying, notice, this man 
is what is called the great power of God. Verse 11. And they were giving attention because he had for a long time astonished them with magic arts. Now notice something really quick in verse 10. This wasn't general magic or general sorcery. This was a whole new level of wickedness for these Samaritans. They were attributing sorcery and wickedness and magic to the power of God. Notice verse 10. This man is called the great power of God. Now you need to understand something about the Samaritans. You guys know who the Samaritans were? The Samaritans are a very interesting bunch. You can do a study on Samaritans and try and figure out where they started. We can probably go back as soon as seeing some of their um, people with Sanballat, with Nehemiah, trying to stop him from building the wall. And if you study history of the Samaritans and the Jews, you'll see there's a great conflict. They hated one another. In fact, the Samaritans worshipped at Gerizim instead of worshipping with the Jews where they would worship because they wanted their own distinct place. But here's why the Samaritans became so corrupt. Do you know what the word syncretism is? When you blend two different religions. See, the Samaritans find their family line with the Jews, probably from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, and they had priests in the line of Aaron and Levi. But somewhere along the line, they mixed up with a bunch of Gentile nations, and they mixed true worship of God, Yahweh, with a bunch of cultic, false worshiping, mysticism, emotionalism, Kind of like what you see today, where a lot of churches are filled up with people that say they're worshiping God, but it's emotionalism, mysticism, and it's full of rank immorality. In fact, the magic that was going on here, most Samaritan scholars say, was full of sexual misconduct, planning evil plots against people, all types of wickedness that they were doing in the name of God through their magic and through their, their false worship and emotional, mystic, kind of pagan beliefs. So these were self-righteous pagans. Voodoo, evil acts, this is what they're full of. So when, when, when he's saying that a revival breaks out in Samaria, he's saying this angry, arrogant, self-righteous, magical, mystical, sexually confused group starts coming to Christ in masses. Notice verse 12. God is birthing His second church outside of Jerusalem, now in Samaria. Notice, 12. But when they believed Philip's preaching... In faith, the good news about the kingdom of God. And notice, good news about the kingdom. What was Philip preaching? You trust in Jesus, you love Jesus, and there's good news. When he returns in his second coming and brings his next kingdom, you'll be right with him. Here's the bad news. If you don't repent and trust him, when he sets up his kingdom, you will not be in it. They repented. They believed in the masses. And notice, there was so much fruit taking place in their life. Watch this. In the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And you remember something. Baptisms, if we go back to Acts 2-4, to and people being added to the church, is talking about a church being formed. So what you just read is the Samaritan church is born. Your second church in the book of Acts. Now, the next line must have shocked the people. Notice verse 13. Even Simon the sorcerer believed. And look at this fruit. His fruit, it seems, looks just like the true believer's fruit in verse 12. Notice, even Simon himself believed. And Simon himself was baptized. And look at this. He continued or attached himself to Philip is the verb. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was amazed. 
So now you've got the false teacher who's the representative pagan worshiper who's influencing all the people and loves ambition and loves the crowd. He responds in the excitement with the crowds and gets baptized and hangs on and attaches himself to the movement. Hold that in your mind. That's scene one. A reformation breaks out in Samaria. Now scene two. Scene two will be fast and then we're going to camp in scene three and spend some time on it. Scene two. The apostles perform an unprecedented miracle to protect the unity of the church. I'm sure some of you have read this and said, what in the world is happening where there's believers being saved but they don't have the Spirit? How, how is it that someone could come to Christ and not have the Spirit? If you haven't read this, watch what's said here. There's a, a two-part unfolding of the Spirit's ministry which is really unprecedented. Notice verse 14. Now when the apostles were in Jerusalem, remember they were holding back there, they were able to stay during the persecution, they heard that Samaria, notice what it says, what does Samaria receive? A program? They receive a marketing scheme? They receive the Word of God. This is the refrain of Acts. The Word of God went forth. So what did they do when they heard people were being saved? They sent Peter and John. And then notice... Something amazing happens here with the Spirit. Verse 15. And they prayed for them, the Samaritans. Now notice this. That they might receive the Holy Spirit. For He, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 17. They began laying hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, you theologically minded people are going, something's not right here. I mean, maybe verses like Romans 8 9 come to your mind. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells within you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. So now you've got believers who have responded, have been baptized under the ministry of Philip, who have not yet received the Spirit. What if I just told you guys, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I won't do that to you. You're all looking at me like, okay, give it to me. And I thought, okay, next point. No. <laughs> So what is going on here? We need to think about something just really quickly here. The book of Acts is the transitional ministry for the life of the Spirit. Okay? So John 14, 14 or 17 to 27, the Spirit is promised. He, will be, he is with you and He will be in you. The permanent residency of the Spirit is going to come. And so if you want to write some notes down here, there's basically four times where the Spirit does something very unique in the book of Acts. Acts 2, He shows up with the permanent indwelling of believers and the special temporary enabling for supernatural gifts. Acts 2. Acts 8 here, we'll talk about in a moment, is a special movement of the Spirit. Acts 10, we're going to see with Cornelius, a Gentile, who seems to be an Old Testament, I mean, a, a Gentile like a Rahab, who's waiting for the Spirit. We'll see that in a couple weeks. And then in Acts 19, you're going to see a bunch of uh, 12 or so of John the Baptist's disciples who had their head in the ground somehow and didn't really know all that was going on, and Paul gives them the Spirit. So Acts 2... Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19. There's transitional movements of the Spirit. So what is going on with this one where there's a two-fold unfolding of the new covenant ministry of the Spirit? Here's what I think it is, and I think most scholars agree. Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. At least 500 years, maybe 1,000 years, right? So you've got massive conflict. They do not get along. Samaritans hate Jews. Jews hate Samaritans. Got it? 
Well, it seems that what is happening here is God has decided to ensure that the Jews don't become self-righteous and proud and think they're better than the Samaritans, and that the Samaritans don't think that they're treated lesser than the Jews, and that the Samaritans will look to the apostles as the leaders of the church. He withholds the permanent indwelling of the Spirit to come to them so that the Jewish apostles can deliver it to them and they can know we are the same as the church in Jerusalem. We can be unified. They're not unique. We're not unique. We're all one in the Spirit. That seems to be the best reason God decided to do this. And then they would trust the apostles. So that is what seems to be happening here and why He held back the Spirit in the transitional ministry of the Spirit. Now, that leads to scene three, and we're going to spend the rest of our time here. This is really the crux of the narrative. We've seen a reformation in Samaria. The apostles perform, that's scene one. Scene two, the apostles perform an unprecedented miracle to protect the unity of the church. Three, and beloved, I just want to invite you in scene three to love your soul enough to listen well. Because you're about to see a false convert in the second church. And he was baptized, and he believed, and he followed around the apostles and he got excited and he got urgent and he had praise on his lips and he was lost. Scene 3. Simon is exposed as a false convert and a threat to the church. Simon is exposed as a false convert and a threat to the church. I was thinking about the church today, beloved, and it just burdens me. It's like, if you bring up false conversion today, if you go and talk to someone about their life, it's like, how unloving, how uncaring, how legalistic. Here we are in Acts 8, second church, and it's in the second church, right in the first narrative about them, a false convert. No, God wants a pure church. And this man's a phony in the church. Simon the sorcerer is exposed. Notice verse 18. We're going to camp here. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was being bestowed through the laying on of hands... Now, you wonder, how would you see the Spirit? Well, it probably means that when the permanent indwelling of the Spirit was coming, they were having power and, and clarity over time as they're watching it. We don't know the time stamp on this. But probably some of the supernatural sign gifts were showing up as well, just like in Jerusalem. And they were able to start seeing maybe the tongues take place and prophecy take place and these miraculous healings. And So there's some, some work going on that's evident among them. So what does this baptized, attached to the church, professing believer do? This is crazy. He offers them money. You say, what are you doing? You're believing, baptized, attach yourself to the church? What are you trying to do? He's trying to buy the Spirit's power. He's trying to purchase apostolic power. And then, beloved, don't read the, the language here and think he's some innocent. The, the grammar in the original, if you'd have been reading it in your Greek, it's an imperative. He starts ordering the apostles. Verse 19, he gives them an imperative. Give this authority to me as well. I want it. I want to have power like an apostle. I want to be able to distribute the Spirit's power like that. Remember his old life? He was a magician. He could woo people with his incredible ability and draw a big crowd. And all of the sudden... He sees, wow, here's a new way for me to be able to utilize this God thing to build my little empire. Now what's interesting is up to this point, as we'll see in a moment, nothing in the text indicates that he knew he was a phony. But his motives start to get exposed when he's tested. When he's tested. Notice, here's his motive. Verse 19, give this authority to me as well. Why? Here's my motive. So that everyone whom I lay hands on will receive the Holy Spirit too. I want to be like you guys. 
Peter, verse 20, remembers how God dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. He knows what a threat it is to have someone who could potentially be a phony in the church. So what does he do in verse 20? He takes him straight on. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. You want to know a a wooden translation of that? To hell with you and your money. Literally. It's abrasive. It's the same language that Jesus used in John 17, 12, praying about Judas, the son of perdition. Your money's going to take you to hell if you live for it. Look at what he says. Here's why to hell with you and your money. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You thought you could take human means to draw on the Spirit's power. How arrogant. Peter goes on, 21. You have no part or portion in this matter. For Look at this. For your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Look at this, verse 23. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. Do you realize that Peter just told a professing baptized believer that was attached to the church to repent and come to Christ? Did he repent? Nope. He disobeys the apostolic command to repent and he fires back another imperative at the apostles. He's full of self-pity. He's full of pride. Don't read this if it's virtuous. This is not humility. This is pride and sarcasm. He directly disobeys. He doesn't consider his heart. He doesn't consider his motives. Verse 24, But Simon the sorcerer answered and said, basically, you pray for me yourselves. Pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you say may come upon me. This is not humility. This is sarcasm, anger, and arrogance. I want to stop here for a moment. When you read verse 12, beloved, everything about it seems like Simon's initial response is true conversion. Look at, look at verse 13, excuse me, not 12. Verse 12, you've got the true believers. and verse 13, you've got Simon. Look at it again in 13. He believed. That's the word pistuo. Same word in chapter 12 to speak of the true believers who actually believed. He was baptized. That means he stood up publicly and renounced his love for magic and his love for sorcery and his love for influence. Water's a baptism. Let me tell all the church, I've... Renounced my old life and committed my life to the Lord Jesus. Notice, then again, he continued is the idea. He attached himself to Philip. He locked on with spiritual leaders. He started following around the leaders in the church. He observed signs and great miracles. He loved seeing power. He was constantly amazed. That means on his lips you might meet him and he might say, That was amazing God did this and that's amazing God did that. What's bursting from his lips is praise. And he wanted the power of God. It's not wrong to want the power of God. You and I want the power of God in our lives. But he wanted the power of God for the wrong reasons. Beloved, do you realize, and I want to say this again, we have no indication in the text that prior to him being confronted and tested that he knew he was a phony. He did not know he was a phony. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and I think it's insightful about him. There is a conscious hypocrisy and an unconscious hypocrisy. And with Simon the sorcerer, we're dealing with an unconscious hypocrisy. I believe that Simon Magnus belonged to this category. He had no idea that his belief was false. You may say, okay, pastor, how can any of us know we're saved then? 
How could any of us have assurance? Well, in verse 12, you've got a whole bunch of people that have assurance and the apostles say nothing to them and they go on and flourish in their walk with Christ and the church in Samaria is born. But in verse 13, you've got the false convert who Peter deals with like God dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. So what do we do with this? Well, I think we can think about this this way. Here's kind of an outline if you want to walk through. I want to walk back through Simon here in this third scene and think of it this way. Here's four ways that we can know Simon was a false convert. Four ways we can know Simon was a false convert. You could call this four signs of any false convert. Because you may be sitting here going, that's kind of concerning, looking at the life of Simon the sorcerer. So, let's think about it. How do we know he was a false convert? One, he was still enslaved to the same passions that enslaved him before his profession and baptism. He was still enslaved to the same passions he was enslaved to before his profession and baptism. Notice verse 23. You are in the gall of bitterness. And notice this line. And the bondage of iniquity. That's slavery, entanglement, no power language. Remember, he was a magician. He loved influence. He used his ability to sway people and the power of God to build his empire. Now we can indicate from him wanting to buy the Spirit that he was going to try and do that again. So Peter's response to him, you're going to use God like you were using the magic to sway people and influence them? You have not changed. All you've done is put on spiritual Christian camouflage to your dead heart. There's no power. Notice verse 19. He says that. Give this authority to me so that I can utilize it and be like you. That's a lust for influence. You're trying to manipulate people. He's not a changed man. Do you know that Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that there's a group of people? Go read it. 2 Timothy 3 later on 5. They go to church. They listen to sermons. They go to Bible studies. They hang around the church holding to a form of godliness but they deny its power. They say I love the Lord but my life shows no power. Peter's saying to him, you say you've repented of your life of magic and love for influence, but now you're demonstrating to us that you still love that and now you want to utilize God's Spirit to get that? You're an unchanged man. First sign of a false convert is their new life looks no different than their old life. There's no more power now that they've attached Christ to their life than before they said they had Christ. You may say, okay, pastor, that's kind of a little bit concerning. Sometimes I act like a pagan. Sometimes my sin is so severe, my passions rage, and I act like I did before I actually knew Christ. Am I a Simon? Not if you repent. Because that's the second sign of a false convert. When confronted, they won't repent. When confronted, they will not repent. The second reality missing from his life, beloved, is, listen to this, true repentance. Notice verse 22. Peter tells him, Therefore, Simon, repent of the wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, look at this, the motives, the intention of your heart may be forgiven. Beloved, if Simon would have said, Okay, I messed up. That was a mistake. Oh my goodness, my old life just came out. I'm trying to utilize the Lord's ministry for myself. Please forgive me, apostles. I think they just said, Okay, go back with the rest of the sheep. That's, that's what sinners do. Peter said, I'm a candidate. I denied Christ three times, but I repented. But do you know why I know he's a false convert? He did not repent. 
What's he say in 23? Why don't you go pray for me, you and the apostles? I'm not going to condescend and repent of what you tell me. Beloved, everybody sins, but what marks a true believer is that they have true repentance. And what marks a phony is false repentance. Listen, let me tell you something. Simon's baptized. He says he believes. He hangs around the church. He follows around the church. He sings songs around the church. He highlights things God's that are doing, God's doing. But the moment someone comes and messes with one of his darling sins, as Thomas Watson says, the moment Peter comes and starts to press in on an idolatry in his life that he loves, he will not repent, which demonstrates he still loves his sin more than he loves Christ. I tell you what, I can't tell you how many times myself or our leaders have said to new people that come to our church, I'm so excited you're here. This is incredible. You're excited. You're singing. You're growing. You're learning. You're reading. You've got your Puritan paperback. You're in your small group. You're in your Bible study. This is great. You've never been to a church like this. And I always tell you, and you know this, I'm so excited. This is so great. But you're going to be tested. Because at some point, the Word of God is going to start penetrating an idol in your life. And it's going to start moving its way into those darling sins. What you do in that moment will let you know what you're made of. Do you run and get angry like Simon and throw it back in the face of the leaders and chase after your sin? Maybe you're a Simon. Or do you repent? A true believer repents. You say, how do I know I'm not a Simon? When you're confronted, do you repent? What is repentance? To turn from your sin to God, trust in the gospel for forgiveness, and then start working on battling the sin that you were just a part of. If Simon would have said, you nailed it, Peter. Pour into my life. I need to grow in this. I see I'm going back to my old magic ways. Can you guys help me? I want to turn from that. Believer! But he's not. He got angry, and he threw it back in their face. You want to know a false convert? When their idols get tampered with, they get angry, they throw it back at you, and they run. Beloved, if you're new to our church and you've come here six months to a year and the Spirit of God's starting to press you in some significant ways and you're sitting under pride crushers from Pastor Jerry and it's starting to just get in there real difficult. And you're thinking, I used to go to a church where I left encouraged all the time and I'd sing all these big songs about Jesus was my girlfriend and it was amazing and I'd go and I'd get in the car and I'd be charged up and I'd be excited and then by Tuesday I was right back in the same sins with no power. Listen, the mark that you're a Christian is your willingness, what Jerry said last week, to let the Spirit of God penetrate your life. Invite Him in and work on it. You don't do that, you should have no confidence you're a Christian. You can be saved, you can, I mean, you can believe, say, I love Jesus. You can be baptized, you can hang around the church, but if you won't repent of your sin, you have no assurance of salvation. Simon, look at the text. I'm getting this right from the text on the second church ever. Don't you marvel that Luke would include this to the early church so they would have these categories just like Jonathan Edwards wanted the church to have? Listen, you're at a church. Some of you will say, I've never been around a church that talks about true believers and false believers more than this. Welcome to the New Testament. Go read. You want to go do something? Here's a study for you. This is free. Side sermon. You want to do something? Go read First and Second Timothy. The purpose of those books is to tell people how they conduct themselves in the household of God. You've got ten chapters. Right? Six and four. Ten chapters. Three of those chapters are committed to false converts in the church. So 30% of those are committed to unbelievers that profess Christ and hang around the church that are actually lost. 
He was still enslaved to his passions. He would not repent. Third, his motives to believe and be baptized were corrupt. His motives to believe and be baptized were corrupt. Beloved, let me just say this simply. Simon the sorcerer wanted, wanting God's power was not wrong. I want God's power. Do you want God's power? Do you want power in your life? I want power in my life. What was wrong with it? Why he wanted God's power? He wanted God's power for himself, for his own glory, for his own significance, for his own kingdom. Listen, beloved. Hell is full of people that come to follow God for false motives. I want better circumstances. I want you to make my battle with sin not so hard. I want fire insurance because I don't like pain. I want you to change my family circumstances. Listen, there's only one reason to come and Simon didn't have it. It's back in verse 12. You come because you want to be right with God and you want your sins forgiven and you want your conscience cleansed and you know that you love and worship yourself and you need God to do a work or hell would be the appropriate place for you for eternity. If you've come for any other means than God's glory, then you've come for the wrong reasons. There's one reason to come. I want forgiveness of sin, a conscience cleansed. I'm a bankrupt, wicked sinner, and I need Jesus to forgive me. Lord, I want to spend my life for you because I've spent my whole life on myself. That's the only reason to come, for the glory of God. Simon came and said, I want your power for me. I have sat under gospel presentations where the pastor's actually given the people a false motive. Come to Jesus and He'll save you from your bad circumstances. Pray this prayer with me. And then the people pray and He says, You're forgiven. I thought, could you imagine those poor people? They leave there. They think they're forgiven. They're told that they came to Jesus to change their bad circumstances. Then their bad circumstances say the same and they blame God. My circumstances are still as bad. You're a liar. False motives. There's one motive. You come for God and God's sake alone. Verse 12, look at it. But when they believed, Philip preaching to them the good news of the kingdom and Jesus Christ, they believed on the true gospel. Beloved, Jesus is not a stepping stone to get you what you want. He is the end. And if you don't come for Him and Him alone, you haven't come for the right reason. True believers want Christ for Christ's sake. Lastly, fourth mark here of a false convert. Not only was he enslaved to his passions from the old life, he would not repent. His motives to believe and be baptized were false. Lastly, and this is painful to see. <laughs> I've seen this so many times. He became bitter when God did not give him what he wanted. I can't tell you how many times I've watched people reject the Lord and you start to get into their inner life and talk about it. And the reason they reject the Lord is they made a little secret contract with God. God, I'll come if you give me a spouse. You fix this. You fix that. So this gets into the motives one, but now they're putting conditions on God. God, I'll come if you deliver on such and such. Then I'll be your disciple. And then they sprint towards God for a season and then they wait and God doesn't come through on the contract. And notice what happens. Verse 23. He came for the power. They didn't give him the power. He wanted the power. God didn't deliver. That's what he thought he would get. So he blames the apostles. And look at 23. He becomes bitter. For I see, Peter says, that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. You know what that bitterness is there? Hebrews 12.15. Esau's bitterness. A heart full of anger and unbelief. That you made a contract with God. I'll obey you if you come through here, God. You haven't come through. I'm done with you. 
A true believer says, yeah, I have expectations, I struggle, but God, I want to honor you, and if you dictate my life different than I want it to be dictated, I will trust you. Beloved, let's back up. Our time's gone. The second church ever planted by God had a reformation. But what was on the believers' hearts was to make sure that their soul was right with God, ultimately for sure if they would have read this, and to keep the church pure and leave the true fruit where God leaves it. So if you're a believer here today and you say, I sin, but I'm repenting. I love Christ for Christ's sake. My motives are mixed some of the time, but I want His glory and glory alone, and I hate my glory. And yes, sometimes I do get upset with God in the moment, but I repent because I see that such wickedness in my life. It's a Christian. You're repenting. You're striving. You love Jesus. Welcome to the Christian life. It's a life of repenting and striving. And you say, and when people do mess with my idols, I kind of want to punch them in the face. And they kind of get angry at them. But man, I need it. Because left to myself, I'd still be in my bondage. Thank you, Jesus, for another sermon that made me walk with my shoulders a little low. Because I would have walked out of here pride. But now I can walk out humble. Oh, thank you, Lord. What an arrogant person I can be. But let me tell you something. Let me ask you. If you're here and you didn't come to Jesus for Jesus' sake, if you've attached yourself to the church for false motives, if you've put on spiritual camouflage for a corrupt heart, if when a loving friend comes to you, confront you, you hate them and you don't repent, and you're bitter that God hasn't met you on your terms, let me read to you verse 22. Don't be a Simon. Therefore, repent of the wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, would forgive you of the motives of your heart and you'd be forgiven. You don't have to be a Simon. We have no indication that Simon went anywhere but to the judgment. You can be like the rest of those believers and every believer since who repents and loves the Lord. And let's just remember when we want to diminish and drop down the bar of true conversion and true salvation and what the fruit is, that God doesn't want us to do that because He wants His church pure. And let's be more concerned, not about full seats, but about the people that are in the seats, that they're truly converted. Let's pray. Lord, thank You and forgive us. We are sometimes a pathetic bunch. (laughs) And yet, we want to repent. We want to own our sin. We want to own mixed motives. We, We love You, Jesus, and we're sorry for all the times that we don't live like we should. But Lord, that doesn't mitigate or take away from the fact that there are false converts that hang around the church. And Lord, if there's anybody in here, Lord that is a Simon, I pray that they would repent, listen to Peter's counsel and not stiff-arm the truth. They would come to know You and have sins forgiven and know the power of the Spirit. And Lord, we're grateful that only You could write the Bible because we would never include that type of narrative in the middle of a Reformation. We would just focus on all the good that You're doing and not want to think about how easily Satan can slip in. So may we live that, Lord, and love you for that. And when we go hear pride crushers this morning, may we be unlike Simon and be like a Peter and just own it where we have sin and grow. And look, Lord Jesus, you forgave us and you get more glory the more humble we are. So that's what we want. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed.